Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. In this episode, we are hosting Amy Franceschini and Lode Franken from Future Farmers. They are an international group of artists founded in 1995, including anthropologists, farmers and architects who work together to propose alternatives to the social, political and the environmental organization of space. They use various media such as food systems, public transportation and education, but also Future Farmers have been running a design studio that served as a platform to support art projects and their research interests. They are known for long-lived projects such as the Flatbread Society and the Seed Journey. Future Farmers have created temporary schools, books, bus tours and large-scale exhibitions, so many things that have a familiar ring to what we've been discussing here at Ahali. I hope you'll enjoy this open conversation. There are quite a few gems around making spaces that call for communities, how connection to objects matter, and how to think about the tools we make and use. Future farmers invite us to rethink innovation, activism, collaboration, and the shortcomings and complications of language, along with how we grow, what we eat, and actually how nuanced and full of surprises cultural work can be. As always, there's an extensive list of references that we cover on our episode notes, so make sure to check them out for further links. And for the more visually oriented, we are sharing images of the works that are mentioned on our Instagram. So check us out at ahali.podcast. Welcome, Amy and Lode. Let's start with the now, and then we'll try to go backwards and forwards in time. My observation of future farmers and your practice is that it's always in a process of becoming... So let's try to take a snapshot of of the today. Where is Future Farmers now and what are the matters of concern for you or what are you is there anything you are working on specifically at the moment? <laughs> We are sitting in Ghent, Belgium, above a small canal with several different species of birds and people walking with different wheeled objects, an abandoned tower that used to be used to practice fire exercises. And we just finished a project last weekend that was actually a corona project in Belgium. It was funding that was given to make projects that couldn't be made during corona. So it was mainly for people who do things in the public domain to question how do you make public projects when people cannot go outside or mingle. And so in the winter, we proposed mm. to bring together 24 musicians inside the belly of a whale and move through the cities between Brussels and Antwerp and Ghent due to a lot of reasons we couldn't bring 24 musicians together. So it was postponed until the summer. But the idea was, or the name of the project was In the Belly of the City, a Whale. And think about just the use of sound and improvisation between musicians as a way to maybe grace the public domain in a time where we couldn't gather physically. So in the end, we floated a whale from Brussels with 12 different musicians every day. So they improvised for seven hours on this whale that we built on top of a boat. But the project became many things that were just evolved through the imaginary of this idea of a whale visiting the city. So people started to hear about this whale that was going to come to the city. And libraries in each of the cities offered to host zine-making workshops to make a whale-sized zine to live in the belly of this whale. So people had workshops in different cities and artist-run organizations. And a writer was commissioned to write about this coming of the whale. So mm -hmm. Antoine Buta was a writer who joined us and a filmmaker joined the project to create a film. And I think the most exciting thing that kind of, I mean, everything felt very beautiful as it was coalescing. But I think the idea of bringing together musicians who had never played before to improvise for seven hours was really wonderful mm. to see what happened. And the musicians were from the area or did they come from somewhere else or were they responding to where they are in any sense? 
I think it's a very international group, but they all live in Brussels, I think, and in Ghent and in, yeah, in Flanders, mostly. They come from everywhere, but there is a big jazz scene in Brussels, I think, international jazz scene. But the nice thing, I think, about the project was also that in the, in the beginning, the musicians asked, and who is the audience? So there was no audience on the boat. The audience mm -hmm. was on the shore. And um, since I was not allowed to bring groups together with Corona, we couldn't really say we're going to stop there and there is a concert. So we had an ongoing improvisation jazz jam for seven hours and people on the shore hear it. But in many parts, there was no shore or no accessibility to go on the shore. I mean, to see the boat. So we played for uh, the reeds, the herons, the ducks and things like that. And we kept on playing. So the question of what is an audience was also a part of this project, I think. Yeah. So just to understand, because I think I misunderstood in the beginning. So it was literally floating. So it was a vessel on the sea or in the canals. And then the musicians were having a jam session on the boat, which is a whale. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was picturing like this procession kind of thing, like moving around the street. So thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> moving on the river. Moving on the river. Belgium is kind of one big city. So... <laughs> And, and it lasted two days? Yeah, it lasted two days. Yeah. I think this question of the audience is interesting. And most often, perhaps, I mean, this was going to be a later question from me to you, but uh, most often the participants seem to be the key audience in work such as yours or your projects. I mean, I'm imagining there is an outside who learn from these practices, who learn from these actions and installations, but those who participate are actually in a way more an integrated, not an audience, but thinking of it as a usership as well, perhaps. Yeah, I think many years ago when we started doing more public projects, we started to react to the demands of institutions always wanting to know who the audience was before you did the project or the reach of your project, reacting by wanting to do very intimate works mm -hmm. where the possibility of an interaction with one person might be more <laughs> effective than a thousand people. And I think often, like we did a project in Oslo, an eight-year-long project, and in the first year, the wish was to really publicize our presence in Oslo and the presence of ideas that were just seeding. And we requested to only communicate in smoke, smoke signals and mm -hmm. word of mouth for the first year because we felt like to create a truly durable, durational project in a city where you don't live, it's actually... Maybe interesting to see how things move just through gossip and word of mouth and get roots on their own. Yeah. And I mean, one thread is obviously the more, let's say, one-off public projects, such as the one you explained in Belgium. And then there is also, I mean, I call them stubs or things that kind of move, like start from future farmers, but evolve into something of their own, which I think the project you are referring to is Flatbread Society. And my observation is that it's one such stub that it almost becomes an entity of its own, not only due to duration, but due to the expansion of time, expansion of involvement by others and things like that. So maybe let me ask, like, how do you decide about this difference? Or do you decide in advance or do certain projects evolve to become longer lasting or do you in advance know that the flatbread society will last? I think for flatbread society, we knew that it was a long term project, but other projects, it seems that, I mean, if you're talking about audience and participants, it seems that, that there is a sort of maybe there is a sort of practice where we make artwork that challenges people or arise the curiosity of people. And from spectator, they come and become part of this thing and part of this project. And so the project grows while it's going. And so maybe if you talk about becoming, it's maybe becoming from a, a spectator to a participant. And with the whale, with Flatbread Society, but I think also with... Um, this is not a Trojan horse. The horse was wandering through the region. People saw the horse, came to look at the horse. What is this? What is this horse doing here? There was a talk going on. They start to organize from a spectator to become participants. It was a one year project. But then out of this project, people started to organize. Another project came out of this project, the tree house in Polinaria, which is an extension to this project. It, it's also, it happens that a project writes its own timing or sort of um, becomes a long term 
project because people get engaged, wants to go on the project, take on the project, ask us, mm-hmm. ask us to come back. We do something else. The project grows, new spectators becomes participants. And it is apparently most of the projects become long term in the end. Mm-hmm. Or keep on going. Soul kitchen, same thing. I also think that very soon into projects, we feel like we're participants of someone else's project. It's an exciting position to be where the desire, we maybe trigger desires that are already there and that it takes on its own kind of direction and we're, we, we start to follow. Yeah. Also, like with the Flatbread Society, maybe it might be worthwhile explaining a little bit like for our audience, but the image of the fire is like something or a kiln or an oven is something that like always already asks for or calls for gathering around it. And the Flatbread Society is like, as far as I understand, bread making and baking is kind of very widely familiar in different forms, but most in most places around the world. So it creates a kind of immediate connection. And from there on, other things seem to have emerged. So maybe it would be nice to give like a synopsis or a short description of the Flatbread Society as well, because I think it might be useful to understand the practice better as well. So we were invited to Oslo into a public art project called Slow Space Norway. And The idea was to make a permanent piece in a new waterfront development in a common area. So in Norway, they have a very strong idea of the commons. And so in this new development, they created several areas that were the commons. And we proposed to work in an area that was not to be developed for 20 years. So it was a bit of a nowhere land. And we chose that because we felt like we could maybe get away with things there um, that weren't in the spotlight and create something in a slow pace that would would have yeah a different tension span maybe we pr- also proposed to do a year of wandering and we called it the explorator and we created kind of these relation we call them relational objects or props to wander around to meet people and kind of see what the desires were and we often do that the first prop we made was a canoe oven and we had already had sort of ideas of creating something called a bakehouse in Norway they have in many villages especially rural villages there's a common bakehouse so people bake there they mill their flour they make their bread and they bake it and they store it together because it's more economical to use one oven at one time mm. and we visited several of these bakehouses and many people said the bakehouse is like the contemporary church and it's where people gossip and we all know about each other here and so we did propose the idea would it be interesting to have a bakehouse in the city and immediately with the, the we also created this working group named flatbread society because everyone in norway was eating flatbread not just norwegians but many immigrant cultures were eating flatbread from iran iraq afghanistan pakistan and we thought that the idea of flatbread could kind of mix be a currency between different cultures and so the name was something that immediately caught people's imagination from everywhere and so we thought let's let's make this uh, canoe oven that we can row to different neighborhoods and then walk out of the water and bake and talk to people <laughs> and so that image immediately is this absurd kind of image of an oven on the water and then two people walking out of the water and we ran a radio station from this oven so we would bake and interview and talk to people about this development in Norway their positions on it and then provoke an idea would you come to a bakehouse on the water and so from that people started to invite the oven to their institutions to their schools to their birthday parties <laughs> um, and the oven became this um, kind of space that allowed for people to kind of write their own stories and it became a, a space in around it where people started to organize themselves and so the idea grew to create a permanent farm in this area that was growing old grains that were out of the industrialized process of agriculture and grains that were not certified so these grains became the symbol of the commons for this area and each grain that we were planting there had a very specific story of resilience so many of the grains had fallen out of production and were found by farmers in kind of precarious situations and brought back into production so in short the project became this demonstration garden for these ancient grains to be brought back into production there was a community farm that was started 
a working group came out of that community garden that was self-organized. And then there was such a kind of draw of people there that the city started to take it very seriously and gave us license to be there permanently. And we also hired a city farmer to tend to the garden. So this was the first time the Norwegian Farmers Union and the city had a city farmer. And then we built this bakehouse that was a permanent meeting place that could facilitate meeting and baking and and other activities. Mm -hmm. So the project, that's a very short synopsis (laughs) of a 10-year-long project. No, this was very helpful. And several questions kind of emerge from that. I'll try to not forget them. But one is... And more about the imagery that you employ. So the image of a boat, for example, like starting with the canoe and the current bakehouse is also shaped like a ship. If I'm not misreading it, it feels like an upside down carcass of a ship. And then it also recurs like this floating, new floating work and this image of the ship. So there is that one question. And the other question, maybe like on a totally different thread is like, how do you sustain And how do you kind of onboard local governments and enable such, for example, the employment of a city farmers? Very interesting. So whichever one you want to start from, but I have these like two key questions. One is more formal and maybe metaphorical and the other is more kind of practical, so to say. I think going back to the canoe that walks out of the water with the oven and then stops in all these different places. That is, uh, again, this, this way of creating a sort of network hanging around, seeing what happened, bringing people together and making a community out of this wandering around and this weird structure where you make, at that point, you make sort of the subject of your project. I mean, we had an idea, of course, of flatbread society and making a bakehouse, but in fact, the story comes out of the people you bring together with this wandering around and making this network and making this network, you make a subject as a thinking together of a group of people that never was together because of, we called, and so they bring all people together, but also stories together, issues together that become the part of the project. And then people slowly take over and, and make their own sort of project out of the project. I was going to comment that notion of a contingent community or that kind of unfixed community that could easily surround a project and be evolved to become one is very much like what Ahali refers to as well as a term. It's this kind of without prior commonality that certain moments or certain occasions or situations can bring people together to form another sense of community, which is much more in flux, much more contingent perhaps, but still meaningful. So in that sense, that resonates a lot with, let's say, our title even. It's not only bringing people together, it's also bringing stories together issues together. So people approach the piece with a question and then that creates this sort of openness because they don't really know what is happening. It's not like a a space where the floor is pulled out from under them, but it's a provocative space. And I think the form of the bakehouse came out of us. We did a, a workshop called Form and Function at the end of our Explorator. We brought everyone together who we had met And we built a temporary bakehouse to see if people would use it. So we built a temporary oven and it was open completely 24 hours a day so people could come and and use it in ways we wouldn't have expected. And it was interesting to see that it it became a space that activists used. So there was some tensions going on in this waterfront. One was the privatization of the harbor. So many people, sailors and fisher people came and organized and used the oven as a place to talk about keeping this waterfront open. There were also anti-GMO activists who were doing demonstrations in the city who used the oven as their meeting place. And so communities started to gather and we invited everyone who we could to this form and function meeting to imagine this permanent bakehouse and and commons that we are creating. And we also invited lawyers and bankers to think about an alternative economy that could run out of the bakehouse and also the amount of access. So we, we ran this workshop where we had a continuum. We stood on this line of, is the space completely open 24 hours a day or is it completely closed with one key holder? And we had people stand where they thought they 
would want this space to be and speak why they thought that. And then also we had them form a bakehouse in the, using dough and we baked these forms of a bakehouse and we put them on the continuum and talked through them. So some people really wanted a boat <laughs> as a bakehouse. <laughs> and there were these old rescue boats that still were in the harbor, these 1895 rescue boats, and they were very present in people's imaginary. So the, the bakehouse is actually a replica of this old rescue Norwegian rescue boat. And the, the Latin word rescue means to return. And, and that was something that was very present in our project. Not necessarily a re return to the old ways, but people were very... Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, obviously it's like, I like the story and it's kind of resonating with its own place, so to say. But there is also like dimensions of, let's say, food politics and also environmental issues. Like there are many layers to unpack, which will probably need maybe even another session. But at least we can or our listeners can imagine the possible, let's say, percussions of such topics. And it's interesting the way you explain this kind of almost democratic process of decision-making. And maybe we can tie this to my other question, like how do you manage or do you manage? Or is there someone like, how is the division of labor? Is there a division of labor? Like how do you negotiate all these kind of interpersonal or intersubjective dimensions as well as inhabiting a public space, which means that there are also other institutional frameworks that you have to negotiate with, undoubtedly. So how do you make this happen? So I think if we create these networks of people in groups of um, subjects, interests, stories, I think we also tried, uh, definitely in Flatbread Society, to make the commune part of this network. Because, of course, they also have their stories, their laws, their regulations and things like that, and which is part of your story and in which you have to make it possible. The road workers came, the commune came, also the university came, which is sort of the edge of um, a place of discipline where we are disciplined. But that's a, a, nowadays also a place of activism. It's a little bit gray nowadays. Art institutions, same thing. It's always trying to get this, be part of the, the whole network. I think it's also important to know that we are, in Oslo, we're funded by the city. It's a city project. Currently, we're commissioned by the city of Philadelphia to imagine the future forest that they're planting. They have a strategic plan to forest the city, especially underserved neighborhoods. So we're already intermingled with the city in some way. And mm -hmm. it for us, it's important to animate that relationship and challenge some of the these master plans that are already in place when we get there and in Oslo we had the time to kind of unravel some of those plans and rewrite them with the people that were there and I think it became we had an amazing commissioner Anna Bayata Hovind and I think that's not to be uh, underestimated the power of a local commissioner who's worked mm -hmm. in several different communities her whole life I don't remember how she would say it. it's just something that is so attractive that you can't resist it and the city something that the city just cannot resist she had a better word for it but i think there is sort of um making this 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 new community is a sort of um creating a sort of enthusiasm or drive or thing and as, as an artist or as a designer or whatever as an architect normally you have good ideas they're well funded they're well thought of and and it's good but you're alone you present your project and then they decide but now you made this community, it's, I don't know how many families started already with the, in the garden? 150. 150, so you have a group of 150 families and then there is a grow lab coming and then there is, I don't know, which uh, and projects that are there coming together and thinking, and you make a sort of critical mass, but also critical in enthusiast mass. And, and the government that needs, or the commune that needs their votes, they say like, oh, we had a plan for this for this um, place with with herbs and with sport fields and it was all nice and you could do your meditation and there was eatable plants and things like that but suddenly there is this project and there is also the people that like the project and it works so oops plans 
They threw their plans away and said like, oh, this is working. And they became enthusiastic also. So you take them in the boat and they become part. And out of this, um, I think it's a, a difference of thinking a project that is mm. very intelligent and good for, for, for change or something, or making a, a community that is a critical mass or, or even a social movement that moves things. I don't want to see it like uh, fighting or something. No, you create an enthusiast drive. And that is a think uh, a very strong thing. Not at this scale, but having done projects that involve many actors and many people, I can't help but wonder about the kind of organizational dimension, but let's stop it here. Maybe, I mean, this is more a question to Amy, but I think we, I am curious about the past a little bit, because I know that you kind of started off in San Francisco and had like let's say, done a lot of job in that context, maybe in relation to also having studied at Stanford in relation to Silicon Valley. And for a certain duration, you were also this kind of intermingling design work or let's say communication design work. And then on the other hand, also using that as a means to fund other more independent projects. So like, I'm curious whether that comes into play or is it a past that's totally forgotten or would like, how would you talk about those days? They were wonderful. I think <laughs> I grew up on an industrial farm. My father was an industrial farmer, thousands of acres of commodity crops. He owned a pesticide company. Oh. I was very sick as a child and my mother started reading St Rudolf Steiner and studying permaculture and becoming active in farm labor <laughs> and they divorced. And <laughs> so I grew up between these two ideologies of my father truly thinking industrial agriculture is the most wonderful innovation. And then my mother fighting chemical pesticides, nuclear power, and, and defending the life and practice of the small scale farmer. And then moving to San Francisco, I was, I moved there when it was still a very radicalized city. And that as a young person that got me very excited about the potential of direct action politics. So I very much, I identified as an activist then. And then I went to Stanford and it ruined me. No, I went to Stanford <laughs> and I was completely surprised at how apolitical the campus was. There was never a protest. If you wanted to protest, you had to sign up. There was one hour of a stage called, it was called the white stage. <laughs> You could stand, you could sign up to do your protest. And so like people got five minutes to say their thing. And so I was really dying. I was like, there must be some alternative activism here. So I, I went into the archives and I found this moment in time, late 60s at Stanford, where many people came to Stanford to make the personal computer who hadn't been invented yet. And people came thinking this is a tool that we're going to use to liberate us. And there was this whole movement of students who got to Stanford, but then their teachers were teaching them how to make military tools and intelligent tools and tools for war. And they said, wait a minute, we came here to make this, you know, tool for liberation. And so I followed this group. There was a group that came out of this called the Free University that this group ended up starting their own kind of university on campus and teaching alternative Maoist histories and philosophical courses. And that ended up turning into the People's Computer Company, who, who was a group that started making the personal computer and divided when Bill Gates left to commodify what had been done as, as sort of um, free moving ideas. So that moment of research really inspired a, a continuous thinking throughout Future Farmers' work about the tools we use and, and the tools we can possibly make and kind of the consequences of those tools mm. and to think about what innovation is is innovation maybe using something <laughs> without its intended purpose uh, kind of taking it apart and rethinking how to make it more accessible to more hands that goes also for the seeds that there's a common interest in seeds in our work thinking about how do we keep these seeds in the hands of the many rather than the few so I think that's the history that that emerges from. I mean, thanks for the condensed lesson in history, which I didn't know at all. So I, it was really exciting to hear from you. And maybe that brings us to a maybe final question from my behalf, and then we can open up to our audience. 
is that like these tools you are making, how do you consider, I mean, I'll use for lack of a better word, I'll say legacy, but how do you see their continuation or how do you like, because they are in a way, they have a temporal dimension. Some of them are quite long lasting already, but there is also another layer that can inspire other places or other practitioners. So how do you think about documentation or do you think about like what will remain from these projects after they are, maybe also they come to their, the end of their life cycle, or do you imagine an afterlife for them? Like what is the, let's say, like how do you tackle the projection of, let's say future for such projects? I don't know. <laughs> We shall see. At a certain point, you have to think in a sustainable way that it lasts for a while. Of course, everything is temporary and everything becomes um, recycled or institutionalized. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, speaker. so I don't know, maybe at a certain point we have to go back and start a new project to help the project, uh, <laughs> to, to put new fire in the project because I don't know how to think about it. Maybe it's also more interesting to install a sort of practice rather than a mm -hmm. project because I don't think you can do the same project in another place. You do it's it's situational. Most of the projects come out of the situation. We wander around in the situation, out of the situation comes the project. So you can't try to do the project in another place, yeah. but you can do the practice. And I think that's maybe more interesting to have a sort yeah. of an idea. No, and, and also I understand that involves a lot of like situated knowledge in the way Donna Haraway talks about it, but that like, I think there is also a potential to like consider, I mean, and not everything has to last forever. I think it's okay for such works to end as well, and maybe even meaningful for it to have turned into something else, maybe even. Uh, so I'm not obsessed with that notion of sustainability that everything has to last forever, but it can transform it can kind of can have a life cycle that then turns into something else or what have you. But I was also asking about whether you consider tools to disperse the ideas or disperse the practice. And perhaps even just the website is doing that. But I was just curious, like how you think about that. I, for me, what this is more coming from a making point of view or craft point mm -hmm. of view, but in craft, they often talk about this muscle memory, mm. especially in clay or woodworking. And I think often we involve people in the making of the tools, the canoe we didn't, but with the oven, people are invited to come and make this tool. And I think since everyone had some part in it, it has a different resonance. At the moment, we're making these, we're making slit drums out of fallen trees in Philadelphia, and we're working with woodworkers and drum drummers. And I think that even if it's a small interaction with these mm -hmm. tools, that the muscle memory is a very important thing not to ignore. And that there's a certain resonance in just that experience that is is very potent but i think that the object no. for me the object is very important that, that mm. we, we think about the crafting of it the formal aspects of it that it's something that it does have an aura <laughs> you know we, we, we do future that is one thing future farmers does try to craft these objects in a particular with a particular intention yeah no that's two very good responses so one is that it in a way what remains is like what remains with the people and what they in a way, learn not in a kind of patronizing educational sense, but what they learn together with the project. And the other is the the artifacts or the works or the even buildings, I will say, that come out of that practice, your practice. I think thanks for expanding on that. And maybe now we can open to, if there are any comments or questions from the group, we can open to that. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. Hello, it was a great conversation. I wanted to ask something rather more speculative, perhaps. Are there any any communities that you would like to visit? Like if you had the chance, like anywhere in the world that we wouldn't know, but you would, or like, let me even be more surreal. Like if you were able to teleport right now to anywhere, where would it be? Including, let's say also other plants, perhaps. That's such a nice question. I wish I could. Oh, can we think, let me think. There's so many places. Name two then. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's more practical. I feel like we romance so much of the 
kind of 60s radicalism is is informed in my work but it's from a distance looking at archives and um yeah there's this one <laughs> there's this one commune that I learned about in the archives in Stanford it was called the land and it was just outside of Stanford in these mountains there were 60 little communes that were started and it was a lot of people from the east coast who came to the west coast because it was just starting to become very radical and many of them were resisting the draft so there was still this draft in the United States where you were it was obliged to go to the military and there was a lot of staged arrests there so people were like camping in the trees and the police would come and they really staged these arrests in the media. So a lot of media came, but it was a very loosely organized group of 60 different communes. And we visited one of them called Struggle Mountain, but it was 15 years ago and they were having their like 30 year anniversary. So it was Joan Bias was there and all these old activists came together. And so we were hearing all these stories, but I would have liked to be there in the heyday of of it to kind of see how they did organize or didn't organize. And it was just quite a charged place because it was on the edge of the San Francisco Bay where all of the military contracts are. So there's the biggest number of military contractors in San Francisco Bay Area. They build nuclear missiles, they build intelligence. And so then they were sitting there on the edge of this like free thinking community. Yeah. That's one place. Come on, where would you go? Nice. If you could <laughs> to go somewhere. Right now we're trying to get to the United States. We're COVID refugees and it's really frustrating. Mm. So that's kind of on our mind right now. And we, we were going to come to Turkey for two weeks because if you're out of Schengen for two weeks, then you can go to the United States. Struggle Mountain is such a beautiful name. <laughs> Struggle Mountain. It's, it's so incredible there still to this day. There's, I think, seven... Communards, they call themselves the Communards, left, and they still have dinner every Thursday together, but they all have their little clusters where they live. Yeah, I think Northern California is like quite a few of those intentional communities and few of them remain. I think most of them transformed, but that's a very interesting landscape for sure. I saw your lecture in Bolzano. Oh, really? Because you gave a lecture there, no? Yeah, you were there? I was in the audience. I asked you a similar question that you asked me. I think it was really boring. Not that your question was boring, but I think it was... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, but I think it was too... It was very technical. Like, how did you organize that? <laughs> and I think... Oh, my God. I wasn't aware of that. Sorry, it was yeah. the, the one where you organized like a practice space. Didn't you like make a musical practice space? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The recording studio. The recording studio. And I was super, I wanted to know so much about it, but then I felt like I was taking up too much questions <laughs> about that. Uh, let's do it now. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we also organize people and I was just curious like how, yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more how it took on a life of its own mm -hmm. because you, we also often set up these platforms or frameworks that are quite open that allow people to write their own stories. And I thought that was a really, yeah, beautiful example and yeah, so I wanted to kind of understand yeah. what, what parameters you set up and then even like, how did people sign up? I wanted to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's like, a, it's a project called I'll just say it for the audience. And it was a temporary recording studio in Istanbul in the Imece building, which is like also historically the site for especially 80s popular music recording industry was there. And so anyway, long story short, we entered to one of the units, reconfigured it to become a free recording studio for anyone who wanted to sign up. And in response to your question about the community, I mean, I was very lucky to start the project with like 12 of my, let's say, fellow artists who were, some of them were my students and some of them who just joined the group. And we kind of, we established the basic parameters in terms of the space. It was not like super professional, but we had a good recording setup and we had a permanent, let's say, in-resident sound engineer who was helping with the recordings. And then it was really kind of shared labor on the whole group. So we were taking turns to make sure that the, let's say, reservations are made, that uh, when the people come, there is somebody there to help them set up and things like that. And it was really because it didn't have any institutional backing. It was totally like self-organized. Amira Arzik, who's a young curator, she was very much engaged in the project. And we didn't crowdfund it, but we kind of, let's say, try to 
get around let's say 20 30 backers to give a little bit to make it happen and some people uh, landed their instruments some people gave like a let's say symbolic amount for support and eventually like the people who came to record and the people who were hosting the space kind of started to enmesh and that created at least my observation, a certain vibe. And they were even like, I wasn't invited to most of the gatherings because they were just hanging out among themselves. <laughs> Not that I'm uh, jealous or upset, but so it really became a space, you know, it really became a space where, which had its own community, but it was also in flux, like new people entered, some people uh, didn't continue. They just recorded and left. Some people hung around. I think there was even maybe some romance that kind of sparked from those meetings. So it was really this tiny room which enabled encounters. And from that, it emerged to become a community, so to say. But yeah, in terms of organization, it was, I mean, I'm, I can be sometimes strict. So I'm like making sure everybody's like, that the space is taken care of and I visit frequently and I made sure that things are working all the time. And then the more interpersonal thing, let's say is a risk, but it usually when there is the will and when there is the kind of excitement around the project, as you said, also like something to aspire to be part of, then that kind of, let's say, participation or devotion emerges. And how do you feel, like one question I had was, how would that, it's a totally different project, but how would it have been if that was accessible more publicly? Because in a way they go in this mm. little room and it's there, yeah. it's a, it's a beautiful little community. But I was, I was thinking like, could there be like a space underground where people could have access to this record, like to see the process of the making? It's a totally different pro project, but. Mm. No, it's a very good question, but actually I have to, like, I didn't go too much into the building, but the building is very interesting. It's really designed as a public space and it's really from like, let's say 1960s standards where the amount of open space, it's like a semi-open building. So it's like corridors, courtyards, and they are borrowing from like historical architectures like the Bedestan and Arast, so this kind of agora, let's say, space. And so there is so much potential there. And the units are all looking to these kind of open corridors and courtyards. So even when we were there, I was like fantasizing, like what if other collectives started kind of inhabiting other units and this became a zone almost of, let's say, interconnected, like small collectives. I wouldn't, like, I think it's, if it would have been a different project to organize it like on a major scale, but if it were to become a kind of, let's say, network of different collectives, maybe one recording studio, maybe another is like a ceramics workshop, maybe another is, I don't know, something even like related to technology or design, what have you. But this kind of space could have really transformed. I think it would have been like the fantasy say would be to like for this building to host many small collectives which would then start kind of sparking firing wiring together with each other so that could have been one way and it was i mean it's still it still has a kind of boundary but it's a very open space it's like it was originally imagined as public space the whole all the courtyards but eventually they started kind of closing the gates at night after dark so and that boundary also doesn't match with the original ethos of the building but so these questions could have also then emerged from that as well and i took too long for this but another side note is that when we were doing the project there was also discussion about the demolition of this building to make room for let's say residential development or different construction site so it was we were also trying to tap in to that discussion around the building and discussion around public space and especially the discussion around the construction frenzy in Istanbul. So we had also made some discussions. So it wasn't only music recording, but we had, let's say, small podcast conversations, both around urban issues and also around, let's say, music as well. So it was this kind of space of conversation. Thank you for going into that. I really enjoyed your lecture. It was your work it was great. Thanks so much. I was I'm happy to learn happy to, to learn hear. about your work. <laughs> Same here. As a side note, I might drop 
The unit that John mentioned belongs to an artist-run space called 5533. Yeah, we should credit that for sure. <laughs> and they continue to exist there. I mean, they've be, they were there before we entered and they are still there. And yeah, thanks, Sarp. Very important. I feel more driven to work with music and sound right now because, yeah, we're working in Philadelphia for the next three years on this another public art project. And it's such a, we're not from there and it has such a heavy political history, especially right now. It's very on the surface. We're trying to find a way, a, a medium that transcends this. I think spoken word is so heavy right now. The the language that we yeah. use to talk about our situation is so loaded. And so, yeah, I just think music is one way that we can communicate on a different frequency. Definitely. I definitely agree. Sound and music is, I mean, maybe you also like bread is, I feel, is, has a similar uh, kind of thing. But in music's nature, most often it's also... Like not always, but most often it's also performed collectively, experienced collectively. And there is that given in a sense of doing something together. And I think that really feeds into the the vibe, the spirit of the projects that involve music. So, yeah, definitely. Can we maybe then hear a bit about Radio Ramona since the conversation kind of came to that? <laughs> Radio Ramona. Yeah, I think radio has been the medium that's gone throughout Future Farmers for a long time. And I think it it's also stems from this interest in tools and thinking about how much our maybe access to these tools is enclosed by corporate entities and how the there's sort of this, I think Radio Ramona was different because it was a streaming radio station. So it was, it wasn't, it was going up to the internet and then people could listen to it on the internet. But the function of Radio Ramona in Flatbread Society was to be the voice of the project. And so Marta Van Dessel is a collaborator of ours from Antwerp and she's very technically savvy. So she built this little streaming transmitter that could just upload these conversations we had with people when we were wandering with the canoe live and they're all they're all archived. She embedded the recorder in this baguette. So when people talked, they were talking to a piece of bread. <laughs> and I think for me in that case, Radio Ramona, the radio part wasn't so important. I think that people talk in a different way when they are being recorded or interviewed or with the thought that they're going they're going to be heard and they were they could be heard but i don't think the reach was very far it was a it was online on our website and that was pretty much the furthest it, it was broadcast we would always play the recordings when we baked so in the temporary bakehouse we had a sound system and all these conversations were just streaming you could tune in or tune out so there was sort of immediacy to that conversation being returned but i think an interesting thing that came up through that project was this kind of overlapping metaphors between agriculture and, and radio, where if you think about seeds are broadcast kind of wildly yeah. um, and they, they travel through time and space. If you think about a seed, maybe it's carried by a bird, maybe it's carried by a human very far. And radio is also broadcast onto the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's think, I think these, this idea of like the land, the spectrum of the land and the spectrum of the electromagnetic field intermingling became interesting to us. Yeah, no, that's really nice set of metaphors. And also, I think it touches on my question about, let's say, communication distribution and legacy. So think in terms of seeds or to think in terms of broadcasting is really, really interesting. Thank you. Do we have any other questions or comments or remarks? I know that Sarp was curious about how you ended up designing the brand identity for Twitter. <laughs> yes, that's something I would like to hear. Yeah. Mm, it's a nightmare story. <laughs> we'll keep that out if you don't want no, to. I don't know. It was from, I, honestly, it was, I used to go to these full moon raves in San Francisco. Every full moon, they would have these secret raves and you would hear by word of mouth. And then it would be in some random, beautiful beach. People would bring sound systems down and project films. And, and there was one guy who organized it. And many years later, that was in the early 90s. And then many years later, I think it was 2003, I got a phone call from him and he said, I invented something that's going to change the world and I want you to design the logo and then I'm going to sell it and I'm going to drop out. <laughs> 
And he came to our studio and he was in this fluorescent, multicolored running outfit. He still was a raver. And Noah Glass was his name, quite a special character. He was a kind of hacker tech guy. And he had me download this thing and then he left. And I kept getting these announcements like, I'm on top of Twin Peaks. I'm at the gym. I'm at this party. And I was like, this is so ridiculous. Why do I need to know where you are all the time? And why are you so busy doing this? But I kind of liked him. And I said, okay, I'll, well, I'll design you something really quickly. And we had an artist in residence from Germany, Linda Lau, with us. And so I asked her to remake this little bird that we have on the Future Farmers re website. And I made a quickest logo ever from Helvetica around it. I pulled the T out and then we gave it to him. <laughs> and then he sold the company to Odeo, who owns it now. I think he gave us $1,000, which seemed like a lot of money then for a quick job. And then years later, I got this phone call that said, hey, do you have the contract for the Twitter logo? And I said, no, I, we didn't make a contract. I think I threw it away. And then I think it was something on paper. And then I hung up and then someone said, that's a curious call. You should mm. see why they want the contract. And so they, I didn't call. They called back. And basically, this small company was going to sell to Google. Mm. And they needed a contract to prove that they owned the logo. I still didn't pursue it. And then years later, someone said, actually, you own the rights to that. If you, They don't have a contract. You are the technical owner. And this lawyer offered to represent me for free to get the rights. And we started to get the rights. And it was such an ugly process that I said, I don't want to do this. Like the Twitter people started to say, oh, like, yeah, it just became like um, this us against them legal case. And I, did, I just didn't want to deal with it. And so in the end, we got $15,000 to write a new contract. But we could have gotten millions, millions and millions. And people thought I was really stupid, but I just didn't want to be in a conversation with lawyers for a year. Yeah. That's the long story. Sorry. Really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. Good riddance, I will say. <laughs> I don't, sometimes I think I should have done it and started an arts organization giving away grants and done something really good with the money. But I think it's, uh, yeah. No, I mean, we are all human and the the kind of the type and the amount of energy some things demand from you can be really tiresome. So I, I totally understand and respect not wanting to deal with it. And <laughs> <laughs> not that you need my <laughs> affirmation, but yeah. But thanks for telling us the story. It's yeah, great. thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Great. And I would love to keep up with your work, what you're doing. It's so curious. I'll definitely keep you posted. Okay. And thank you uh, for the invitation too. Our pleasure. Hope to remain in conversation. And thank you everyone who joined. And thanks to both of you for your generous contribution. Thank you to everyone in the audience there. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us and staying until the very end. What an humble way to treat one's own footprint on the world, being open to learn from the past as much as from the now. I'm grateful to Amy and Lode for their time and their candor. For me, the key takeaway was the correlation amongst crafting, communities and form. Hearing about the way they use the material aspects of their works as probes to help collectively form communities and the way this formal dimension or aura is key to the process was really refreshing. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprenk Özer with Daria Yildiz as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Elif Soğuksu and with music by Groupses. Make sure to check out the show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space or get some visual insights at ahali.podcast via Instagram. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever really works for you. This was a highly conversations with me, Jan Altai, and we truly hope to see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>